Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This week, I sit down with Democratic presidential candidate Mayor Pete Buttigieg. I don't think it makes sense to worry too much about any one of my competitors. Then, Ross, Michelle, and I talk about Mayor Pete's rise and his views on intergenerational justice, the radicalization of the Republican Party, and more. He has a pitch that's kind of aimed squarely at, like, me. And finally, a recommendation. You're sort of pinned to your seat. He's the 37-year-old mayor of South Bend, Indiana, which isn't exactly a typical resume for a presidential candidate. He's the youngest candidate and the first openly gay one, but he says it's not about winning a race, it's about winning an era. But these aren't typical times, and Pete Buttigieg seems to have intrigued a lot of Democratic voters. In recent polls in Iowa and New Hampshire, he's been in third place behind only Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. I went to Chicago last week where Buttigieg was campaigning, and we sat down in a downtown studio. After you hear our conversation, Ross and Michelle will come back to offer their thoughts on the Buttigieg phenomenon. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, welcome to The Argument. Thanks for having me. So we're sitting here in uh, downtown Chicago in a studio, and I actually want to start by reading you a sentence from your book Uh um, uh, as a way to ask you a question. So you have this great little phrase where you say, a politician's account of how he or she first came to run for office is supposed to begin with a ritual mention of having been urged to do so by others, being flattered, demurring, and eventually feeling called to step forward. So with that, I have to ask you, when did you decide to run for president and and what made you do it? (laughs) So uh, the first kind of murmurings of it happened when I was running for DNC chair. And some people really did suggest that I run for president. I couldn't tell if they were just being nice, especially because many of them were not going to support me for the DNC. So they explained (laughs) why they thought I would make a good president, but not uh, were not ready to vote for me for DNC chair for what turned out to be all kinds of reasons relating to their own commitments and and loyalties. But that didn't really get into my head too much because I was getting ready to go back home to South Bend. And my thought had always been not to think too far beyond my current job, but that if I was going to be a really good, successful two-term mayor, then I'd have a chance of running for governor in Indiana. Uh, But I also think the way you run for office is you, you kind of map what the office calls for at the moment. And then you think about what you bring to the table and then you look for a match. So that's the process that led me to run for mayor and DNC chair. It's the process that led me to not run for Congress several times. Mm -hmm. And Following that process didn't really lead me to think that uh, I was uniquely the answer to what Indiana needed in the governor's office. But meanwhile, I'm looking at the national picture and I'm seeing this moment that is of tectonic change where I think even now we might actually be underreacting to how big the urgency of the moment is. I saw that there was a disconnect between my party and the part of the country where I live, the industrial Midwest. I saw a real appetite for generational change uh, swelling up in the party. And I saw a general sense of frustration or even disgust with national politics by sometimes the same people uh, who really believed in their civic institutions and their local government, their mayors. And I thought that I might 
be able to do something that nobody else can do, even people who I largely agree with in the Democratic Party, and that I got to think about stepping up. And so thought about it, talked to people, tried to figure out if this was as crazy as it looked on its face or not. Uh, eventually set up the, the committee in January. By April, we were ready to go full blast and, and uh, officially launch the campaign. And what about Indiana governor did you decide wasn't a good fit? It's just that those same things that I was talking about don't apply in the same way. There's actually a much healthier generational mix among leaders in Indiana right now uh, hmm. than I find that there was kind of visible at the time in the national scene. I, you know, I certainly have some views about how the state ought to be run differently than it is today, but none that I, I thought only I can really help set right when there are a lot of really good, strong Democrats in my state, who uh, one of whom I will, uh, I'm sure, be supporting for governor soon. So you're asked constantly about the experience question, and I'm not going to ask you the normal version of it because I've heard you answer it. And actually, your answer is more persuasive than I expect it to be, which is basically, as a mayor, you make executive decisions that members of Congress, like your competitors in the race, <laughs> which you don't say but imply, make. And you also point out that you're a military veteran, unlike all of our recent presidents. I guess what interests me is the larger issue. If you were to become president, by my calculations, we would have had three of the least experienced or least traditional presidents in our history in a row. Barack Obama was an anonymous state legislator five years before he was president. Donald Trump had never been in politics. I would describe him as a real estate and television huckster. And then you, a medium-sized city mayor. What do you think it says about our country right now that we're doing that? And is it something to be worried about at all? So I think it reflects a sense across the country that normal is not working. And so there was a very kind of hopeful and uh, I think unifying and aspirational response to how to make politics less kind of business as usual that the Obama campaign represented. There was a more kind of vengeful and spiteful version of how to do that. That is what uh, the Trump moment has represented. And we're still there. Uh, we're still at a moment where the last thing Americans want to do is go back to normal, or at least people where I live. I'm worried about this, actually, because I think there will be a temptation for Democrats to say, you know, what, what's going on right now is crazy. It's chaos. It's unsustainable. It's terrible. Therefore, let's go back to normal. And I think that will leave a lot of people cold in the industrial Midwest where I live. Meaning in the general election. Yeah, exactly. Because you could start the clock in the 70s and watch the rising tide, the proverbial rising tide that's supposed to lift all boats. Watch it go up. Watch GDP go up. Watch unemployment uh, in recent years go down. And yet most of the boats didn't budge. Ninety percent of Americans barely saw any real wage growth at all over a period that extends longer than my lifetime. Right. And I think that has contributed to this political moment, to this disaffection, to this frustration, part of what put this president in office. I'm not waving away the, the uh, racism and the xenophobia of his appeal, but I think people are more susceptible to that uh, when there's a, a broad sense that, that nothing works. And I think we're still there. Even more so, actually, because I think what we're now living through is the collapse of the Reagan era, the sort of supply-side neoliberal consensus that dominated the thinking and behavior of Democratic and Republican officials for as long as I've been alive. And it's over because it didn't work. And what comes next could be anything from a kind of enlightened, uh, you know, forward-looking, progressive outlook uh, like what I hope we'll have to something really, really dark like what we're living through right now taken to the next level. You're making an argument there against something that feels safe. 
In a way, yes. Look, we clearly need the kinds of experience or at least the kind of demonstrated commitment to service that the current president lacks. But often, as a matter of leadership and as a matter of political strategy, being too safe is a big mistake. And let's come back to the nomination and this question of electability that keeps getting thrown around. I think sometimes our party can psych ourselves out by nominating the person we think is most, quote unquote, electable and generating somebody who is less inspiring and therefore actually less electable. Part of the example of why it can pay off to do something more unusual is in my home state of Indiana. Only once in the last 50 years, once since LBJ, have we voted Democratic. And it was not for Bill Clinton. It was not for Jimmy Carter. It was not for John Kerry. It was for Barack Obama. Now, if we were sitting here in May of 2007 debating how we could have an electable Democratic nominee who would even put a place like Indiana on the map, I doubt that Barack Hussein Obama would be one of the names that the consultants and, and commentariat would have proposed. And yet, because he was able to arouse something that among voters that transcended some traditional political tribal loyalties, he was able to succeed in some unlikely territory. So I think that's a really important object lesson for us to think about today. It reminds me of something else that you've said, which is there are people in South Bend who have voted for you and for Barack Obama and for Mike Pence as governor mm -hmm. and for Donald Trump as president. And there are probably people who have also then voted for a Democrat in the 2018 midterms, if you look at the national yeah, right. right trends. So obviously those people are not voting based on some analysis of white papers. And, and I don't mean that dismissively. What do you think they are voting on? What is it about those candidates, you and Mike Pence and Barack Obama and Donald Trump, that spoke to those people? Well, you're right. They, they're not downloading all of our policy commitments and mapping them onto a left to right spectrum and deciding whether we're as left or right or center as they are. Uh, I think a lot of it is, is style. I hate to say it because I'm a policy guy and I care most about substance. But then again, sometimes style is substance. I think that's certainly true with this president, who in my view doesn't even have an ideology, just a style. But his style then drives a lot of the policies you see. So I think people want uh, somebody who's for them, who they can relate to, who they believe cares about them or at least will make things better for them. What changes is people also want something refreshing, something different. This is uh, uh, David Axelrod often talks about uh, this kind of theory of opposites, right? It's very convincing. It's how you get Carter after the kind of Nixon experience. It's how you get Reagan after Carter. It's how you get Obama after Bush. We tend to want something that is really different than whatever it is we just had. But I think that's true both in the immediate sense, like the next president's going to be a lot different than this one, and in the sort of epochal sense in which the next 40 or 50 years are going to look very different than the last 40 or 50. Before we move on, let's just put a fine point on this. It feels like this race now has a front runner, and it's Joe Biden. And it feels like all the things you're saying are an argument against the Democrats nominating Joe Biden. I don't think it makes sense to worry too much about any one of my competitors because there are so many of them. <laughs> and everybody brings different virtues into this race. It feels like somebody's joining every day. But I think we're still at a moment where most people are just beginning to dial in. Yep. So it's natural enough that, especially for those who are less likely to be following the blow by blow, um, the first name you're going to say to a pollster is going to be the most famous. And that's roughly the pattern that explains where the top tier is right now. And that pattern may not change until the last few weeks. Okay, let's talk policy. So you've made clear that your number one priority would be democratic reform, small d, right? Not health care, not climate, not inequality. You care about all those things, but your number one priority would be democratic reform. And so some of that seems fairly clear to me what that would be, make it easier for people to vote, make it harder for companies to anonymously give huge amounts of money to affect races. And so I can see a fair amount of that passing if you have a democratic Congress. 
Then there's this whole other category, enlarging the Supreme Court, enlarging the size of the House. And I'm all for the idea of presidential campaigns being times for bold ideas and starting conversations. But boy, I have a really hard time seeing how you're going to enlarge the size of the Supreme Court. And I'm interested in how you think about that if it's your number one priority. First of all, the reason I think these democratic reforms are so important is because I think every other issue we do care about, immigration, climate, inequality, gun safety, are dramatically harder to deal with until we've repaired our democracy. The reason I think we should undertake some of these very bold debates is precisely because they're going to take a long time and a lot of work. Uh, It means we don't have a moment to lose. The consequences of remaining as undemocratic as we are in everything from the way our districts are drawn to the way our president is chosen, I think those consequences get more serious each passing year. And while these are among those issues that I think have always been viewed as important and never viewed as urgent, like D.C. statehood, I don't think anybody can make a principled argument about why D.C. voters shouldn't enjoy I agree. Uh, a, a senator. We just tolerate it because it's just been that way. And even though most people want to do the right thing, it's not going to make it into your top 15 when you're worried about wages and jobs and health care and whatever. And yet, the longer we allow it to go on, the more harms come to this country. And it's just one example of how decisions are being made that do not reflect where the American people believe we ought to be. And perversely, even though I think he's making it worse, the current president arrived where he is partly as a consequence of this general feeling, this roiling sense that nothing works, that neither our democracy nor our economy is working for people. And while he's certainly not a solution to that, I think he exploited our awareness of the problem at a moment when we seem sometimes as Democrats in past years to appear like we're defenders of the system. So the reason I think that even as a candidate for the presidency, I need to be talking about these things under no illusions. For example, in the first hundred days, a president can deliver a reformed Supreme Court. Is that if this is a 10 or 20 year battle, yep. all the more urgency starting that battle yesterday, however bleak and strange things seem now, imagine where they'll be in 20 years if we've done nothing. And I'm planning to be here in 20 years. But I assume a lot of that stuff you would want to get done in the first 100 days. Yeah. I mean, the stuff that was in H.R. 1, for right. example. Which is the uh, House bill. On- pro-democracy, anti-corruption bill that was passed in, this, in the House. It's going to the Senate where it will die. Uh, that is something that uh, I would want to sign right away as president. Uh, and that's just the beginning. So yeah, some of these things you can do right away. Some of them I think you just set into motion and then begin turning to the specific policy areas that we care about, of which I think the most pressing and urgent is climate. So you've said a lot of the reason we need this is that the Republican Party too often does not operate in good faith. How did that happen? How did the Republican Party become radicalized? Meaning why? And what is it going to take to de-radicalize the Republican Party? Well, the main reason they've done it is because it works. The way they've behaved in the Senate, for example, in order to get their way on the Supreme Court, they changed the number of Supreme Court justices to eight. Yes, they did. Until they took power again. So some really radical behavior. And they did it because it works. And the reward system right now contributes to that. Now, part of this ties back to the bigger democracy question. So this is also a function of the fact that, for example, with the Senate structured so that uh, somebody in Wyoming gets 100 times the political influence of somebody in California, you add that to just good old-fashioned gerrymandering and all the harm that does. And you see that there is something not quite symmetrical in the polarization that's going on. So a lot of people wring their hands over how Democrats and Republicans have become more polarized. And in certain ways, I get that, although I think a lot of that's tonal. Substantively, the story of my lifetime, at least on economics, is that the Republican Party moved quite a bit to the right 
and the Democratic Party moved quite a bit to the right. The other problem with radicalization is that it's got a self-fulfilling quality. So if you're a Republican who has stuck around for the Trump agenda for the first year or two, and now you're having doubts, you don't really have a lot of places to go. <laughs> right? You've become so alienated from the mainstream by being on board with this stuff. This is not that different from how radicalization works anywhere in the world. And so if we want to think about how the Republican Party might someday recover from the hostile takeover that it's just experienced. The only thing I can imagine that would work is for the reward system to change. In other words, for fidelity to Trump over fidelity to traditional conservative values, let alone you know values that I would espouse as a progressive, for that kind of outlandish loyalty to be punished at yes. the ballot box. And it's one of the reasons why I think the best thing I can do, not only for the future of the country, but in some ways for the future of the Republican Party and the two-party system, is to do my part to see to it that this president is resoundingly defeated and that whoever beats him, uh, hopefully me, has coattails in the House and Senate too. So I think there's a good chance that whichever party wins the presidency will win the Senate, but there's also a chance that the Democrats will win the presidency and not the Senate. In that scenario, you're not going to get legislation passed, I don't think. So what do you do if you're president and it's 2021 and you're facing massive resistance, to use a historical term, from Majority Leader Mitch McConnell? Then you put the fear of God into him when it comes to 2022. Look, again, one of the things we got to remember is that the American people agree with us on most of these issues. You take wages, health, choice, even ones where we've typically been on the defensive, like immigration or guns. And most Americans agree with us. And so if, if the Senate continues to veer in a direction that is just deeply out of step with the American people, then there has to be a price to be paid for that. And I think a very good use of Air Force One is to fly it into the state or district of somebody who is out of step with the American people and increasingly out of step with his or her own constituents and remind everybody what's at stake. Now, they will do everything they can to distract from that. One thing that this presidency does is use an outrageous tweet to take everybody's eyes off the fact that we're the ones trying to get you raised and they're the ones trying to stop it. And we're the ones trying to keep your health care and they're the ones trying to take it away. We're the ones who actually believe that paid family leave ought to be a right. They're the ones who gave it lip service and then couldn't care less. Basically, imagine the difference between a president who is trying to take our eye off of that and a president who is trying to focus us on that. I think that's all the difference. And I think even in a bad faith, power-oriented, cold-hearted, calculating Republican Senate caucus, there is a way to get their attention by threatening their grasp on power using not just the mechanics of government, but good old-fashioned political rhetoric and use of that bully pulpit to remind everybody just how far off the cliff they've gone. So you brought up climate. There's a big part of me that thinks it should be the number one issue that every candidate is talking about. So can you give me a sense of your approach on climate? I'll tell you how I think about it, which is for a long time, the progressives who wanted to attack climate wanted to do it by raising the price of dirty energy through a carbon tax or through a cap and trade program. And that's really hard to do. Now there are more people saying, no, no, we shouldn't do that. We should fund clean energy research. We should put in place these clean energy requirements which is kind of hiding the price increases, but might be more politically palatable. And there's a debate over this. Economists say, no, no, the first approach is still the best. A lot of other people say, yeah, but it's not going to happen. Where in that debate are you? Uh, I think you've got to do both. Uh, I think you've got to do massive R&D increases, you know, probably at least quadruple. If you use as a baseline uh, something like the Apollo Project or the Manhattan 
project. But the reality is we need to cut emissions and probably draw some out of the atmosphere. So we should be researching that. But that doesn't get you out of the fact that we need to do carbon pricing. I don't think there's a realistic way that we get anywhere near our emissions targets without it. Now, the twist I want to put on it is that if it's done as a tax and dividend and it's distributed in a progressive way, then for most individual Americans, their experience of the carbon fee will be not that different from their experience of the Bush tax cut. It'll be a check in the mail. And if you experience this as a check in the mail, that more than makes you whole. I think it takes care of some of the political concerns that are getting in the way of doing something that uh, I think pretty clearly is necessary in order for us to safeguard our economy and our security picture for the 21st century. I would like to believe that. I guess my concern is that that's a pretty technocratic program, right? It's, hey, we're going to increase your price of gas at the pump. Trust us. We'll send you a check. And that there are a lot of people, particularly when you have a massive spending effort on the other side, who just aren't going to buy it. And the whole plan could collapse based on your gas prices are going to rise. Am I being too cynical there? Well, we've got to make it really simple. It all depends on the check. <laughs> and if we structure it in the right way, and as somebody said of the uh, political cleverness of the Bush tax cut, keep it simple and take credit. Make sure people know this is not just some obscure thing that shows up as a disappearing line item on your tax returns. Well, we'll make it green. Right. <laughs> you get a big green check. Right. Then it'll help people understand how we really can make them whole on this. And maybe it's not extremely popular on the front end, but it's a pretty good investment of political capital. If you're going to use your political capital on a handful of things, this ought to be one of them. And maybe you send a check before you put the tax increase in place, meaning the first check arrives at year zero, not year one. <laughs> There's going to be some deficit spending on this. I mean, I actually am more concerned with deficits than probably is fashionable on the left with, with most of my colleagues, just because generationally I'm, I'm worried about this coming due in my lifetime. Yep. But there are different kinds of deficit spending. There are those that pay for themselves in the long run, and there's those that don't. Anything you do on carbon and climate will pay for itself compared to the cost of doing nothing. So it might be the kind of area where what you're talking about is justified. So as you said, the bulk of gains in our economy have gone to people at the top, and they've just gotten a tax cut. How do you think is the best way to increase taxes on the wealthy? And I sort of see two options, and the answer could be both. One would be you do some sort of wealth tax, and the two would be you ramp up the top marginal rate. So Obama had it at about 40. Ocasio-Cortez is talking about 70. Back in the 50s, we had it at 90. So right. where are you on those two? What do you like? First of all, I think when we're talking about taxes, we should be talking about it in tandem with what we're actually going to use them for. Yep. You make sure everybody knows exactly what you have in mind to do with it. I'm worried that our tax debate has become a little bit abstract, as if these two things are unrelated. Uh, you know, Some of it depends on what exactly we intend to deliver. That being said, any of the menu of things that Democrats are proposing, we're not going to be able to deliver without revenue. So to me, it's a portfolio approach. You're going to need a mix of solutions. And I think a higher marginal income tax rate and a wealth tax need to be part of that. I think a wealth tax is intuitively attractive because it's not that different from a property tax. The marginal tax rate, I would want to see how much of a benefit we can get by taking the top bracket to 49.9999%. And some of it's psychological, but there's something about paying the majority of a dollar that comes your way to Uncle Sam yep. that I think people have more trouble with. But I do think it's easier for us to take that that far and then look at other things like a wealth tax so that the portfolio adds up to being able to fund all these promises we're making. That's a highly progressive agenda, right? I mean, it's taking the top marginal rate 
above where Obama had it. Mm -hmm. It's adding an annual wealth tax, which we haven't had before, and a financial transactions tax. Being left of Obama doesn't make you extremely progressive. Remember that he was the last Democratic president of the Reagan era, constrained in many of the ways you talked about by the way that the House and the Senate were behaving and were made up. What I'm proposing might be considered conservative by the standards of the 50s, 60s, or 70s. And so where I think we are today is the beginning of a totally new chapter. I like to divide American kind of political history into chunks of 30, 40, or 50 years. I think you had a moment with the dawn of the New Deal. You had a moment with the arrival of the Reagan era. Each of those lasted 30, 40, 50 years. I think you got a moment now, and it could go any number of directions. But when you have a, in some ways, fanatical right-wing, but also not right-wing populist president borrowing rhetoric and ideas from across the political spectrum, there's nothing particularly outlandish about saying that we would want to have a more people who are very wealthy paying their fair share. Neera Tandon, who runs the Center for American Progress, as I'm sure you know, has said that she is no fan of Donald Trump, as she makes clear on Twitter all the time, but he has widened the aperture of plausible policies. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, some people will look at his arrival and say there are no rules. And I'm not sure that's true. I think what's more accurate is that we're about to find out which rules were broken forever and which ones are going to snap back into place in the policy and in the political space. We should spend less time hedging and worrying about whether we're ideologically shooting the right middle distance between left and right and more think about, all right, what would we really do if we had a clean sheet of paper? What would we really do? What kind of healthcare system would we invent? What kind of retirement system would we invent if we were starting from scratch? Not because we're starting from scratch, but because the American people more or less voted to burn the house down when they put this president in. And the more smashed up it is for the next president, the more room for maneuver you have. So it is a perverse but real advantage uh, that the president will, uh, the next president, hopefully me, will will be able to to work with in terms of creating really original, important, impactful, historic policies that will help set the tone for the next 50 years. And so this question comes from Ross Douthat, my colleague mm-hmm. and co-host. Are there any issues where you can imagine a policy compromise with religious and social conservatives? Can you imagine, be it on abortion, be it on guns, is there any issue where you say, look, My values are in this place, but actually I can imagine a negotiated compromise that I would be comfortable with. Everything in politics winds up being a negotiated compromise. It's one of the reasons why I think as we candidates put out our various policy ideas, there should be a certain measure of humility uh, about how that winds up. You know, nothing from the New Deal to the ACA happened because it was cooked up as a campaign promise and then delivered exactly intact. So wherever we get on these issues will be a compromise. That being said, I mean, my orientation on these issues is pretty progressive. And again, the the odd thing is so is most voters, even in the heartland. So I come, for, for example, from a place that's very conservative on abortion. But you look at most Americans, they are nowhere near what just happened in Alabama or Georgia, including people in Alabama and Georgia. Uh, You know, their own representatives have gone quite a bit to the right of where they are. Choice was supposed to be the compromise, that we have a certain level of humility about whether any one of us, especially a male government official like me, is really positioned to impose a definition of life, a metaphysical question that in a certain sense is unknowable, Uh, impose that definition on anybody else. And so however we feel about it, we decide that the, the space where that decision is made is personal and to some extent medical, not political. That was the compromise. 
And to me, this is one more example of how the entire playing field has been tugged to the right, to where left, right, and center have been moved. And somebody like me is asked whether I'm willing to do something moderate when I'm defending a position that has long been thought moderate but is suddenly presenting as left. You know, on some of these uh, religious discrimination questions, you can always think up some scenario where you, you test it all to the point of queasiness. And the reason that we establish a principle that may lead to a, a kind of queasy debate over, you know, what a baker is supposed to do is to make sure that we never again have a situation where somebody is denied medical care or fired from their job or unable to get housing because they're gay. And the principle there is equality. We're not asking somebody to make a gay product. We're asking them to sell the same product to everybody who comes before them. It's hard for me to think of a fair way to trade some of that off, even if the reality in, in the political space is these things get traded off against each other all the time. The American people may not be where the Republicans are on these social issues, but they're not where the Democrats are either. I mean, the way I read the polling is the American people are decidedly progressive on economics, mm -hmm. but are much more centrist on a lot of these social issues. And they are certainly to my right on a lot of these issues. Mm -hmm. and, and they're to your right as well. I guess I sometimes worry that the Democratic Party confuses the overall progressivism with, of the American people on mm -hmm. economics mm -hmm. with what it wants them to have on immigration and abortion yeah. and guns and all these things. Yes and no. I mean, again, we mentioned immigration, right? Most people want the bipartisan immigration reform that keeps getting killed, uh, usually by Republicans in Washington. You look at guns, 80% of Republicans last time I checked want something like universal background checks. So maybe here's an area where we can explore what a compromise looks like. I think a compromise is negotiating where to draw the line. The maximalist position of a lot of conservatives is that you can't even debate whether to draw a line. Now, the truth is we already have decided to draw a line, right? You can have a water balloon. You can't have a nuclear weapon. Somewhere in between those two things, it is compatible with the Second Amendment that we have a limitation on that right. But the debate is such that you would think that if we're even saying, okay, shouldn't AR-15 really be on the streets right now? You are just categorically violating a right where actually the debate we should have is, okay, we're going to draw a line somewhere. Did we draw it in the right place? Maybe instead of focusing on the weapon, we focus on how hard it is to get a weapon and make it harder the more deadly the weapon is. Maybe that's where we go. The bottom line is there are ways to save lives, many of which are based on things most Americans are already fine with, but that Washington can't deliver. So it's very early, as you said, in this campaign, but there are a whole bunch of polls that list the top three people as you, Joe Biden, and Bernie Sanders. And while you have many differences, <laughs> right, um, you do have at least one thing in common, which is you are all men. And mm -hmm. I wonder, as you reflect on that, and also on the lessons of 2016 and watching Hillary Clinton run, do you think sexism is playing a role in the 2020 campaign already? How big a role do you think it plays in politics? And as a man, what do you think you can do to try to reduce the role that sexism plays in politics? There's no question that it plays a role. Uh, there's no question that it helps to explain what happened in 2016. And while I may be a little too much in the middle of it to have an unbiased assessment of how it affects the 2020 field, there's every reason to believe it's a factor now too. And I think part of the best way to approach it if you're a male politician is to figure out the extent to which you can be helpful here. To what extent are you part of the solution, first of all, policy-wise, making sure that you are 
as forward-leaning on policies that benefit women and benefit the idea of gender equality and gender inclusion. I also think that we should be very watchful of doing anything in the political space because the conduct of our campaigns matters a lot, especially when there's like 20 of us, right? There's 20 different campaigns whose conduct will make uh, a difference in American politics and then only one whose outcome will be the one that makes all the policy impact. So we've got to think about now. Are there things we're doing or things we, we ought to not be doing that could have an impact on sexism? So you know, how much are we willing to traffic in these uh, debates that are very gendered about things like likability. Is a candidate like me well enough educated on how some of these themes or language that, that might slip into our speeches if we're not smart might have some kind of gendered aspect to it that we didn't think about? Um, I think a lot of it is just being ready to learn and listen and, of course, having women in positions of responsibility in our campaigns and in our political space that will make a difference there. China's in the news a lot right now? Yeah. I think U.S. government policy over the last 40 years of both parties has been too lenient toward China. Do you agree with that? In many ways, yes. I mean, it's it's clear that, first of all, China, I think, represents authoritarianism in sheep's clothing, that uh, there's a, a desire to build a lot of goodwill for a model that is deeply inimical to not just American values, but I think shared values uh, around the world when it comes to human rights and when it comes to democracy. But also, of course, more narrowly within the trade space. To me, though, I think what we really need to do is, is reimagine the terms of the debate because some of these things aren't going to change. I want to make sure we're in this sort of competition with the Chinese model, playing a field that is more to our advantage that I think also happens to be the right place to be. So, for example, if democracy promotion mattered more, and economic and policy, you know, other policy tools were aligned at least partly around democracy. Think about climate diplomacy, which is not a big topic these days. But if part of how a country established international prestige were based on its leadership on climate issues, and if we were ready to put our money where our mouth is, then we could actually have a considerable strategic advantage over China. So what we really need to be doing, I think, is recognizing that, uh, you know, the accumulation of hard and soft power, as well as economic power by the Chinese, needs to be met by a plan to ensure that the broader terms of the world stage in geopolitics and diplomacy and security and in trade and economics is to the advantage of things that, yes, are good for America, but are agreeable to a much wider swath of people. What kind of cabinet do you want? Well, a capable, diverse cabinet. It should be the most diverse we've ever had. Again, especially if the president's going to be male and not a person of color. Um, I think it needs to have a mix of novel thinking and comfort with, you know, the kind of experience that brings you comfort with things that are come your way. I faced this when I became mayor. I think if you look at all of my direct appointees, at least in terms of department heads, every single one of them was older than me. It needs to be truth tellers. That's maybe the biggest thing mm-hmm. that I worry about is making sure you have people who are prepared to tell you what you need to hear, uh, which is different than what you'd like to hear, but absolutely crucial to making good decisions. A few last quick things. So Michelle Goldberg, my co-host, like me, she's Generation X. She said one thing she's been struck by is how many parents are excited by your candidacy. And actually, I, my mom texts me with her updated thoughts on the field and, and who her top three is, and you're in my mom's top three. And <laughs> that's so good to hear. My mom is part of it as well. So what do you think that's about? Why is it that baby boomers, 
people often old, over 60, over 70 have gotten intrigued by your candidacy? You know, we noticed this pattern back when I was running for mayor. I was 29 years old. We had enough money for one poll. So we took a poll, tested all these different attributes about me. If you knew Pete was X, you know, would you be more or less likely to vote for him? If you knew Pete was in the Navy, if you knew Pete was in business. And one of the things we tested was, you know, what do people think of me being 29? And it was a straight line correlation. The older the voter was, the more likely they were to say it was positive. We didn't have enough money to do another poll and find out why. (laughs) But I don't know all the things behind it, but you can definitely feel it. We definitely have had some nice resonance among young millennial voters, uh, college students who come to our events, digital natives who respond to our, our social media engagement. But people light up, especially when I talk about generational change at our rallies and at our events in places like Iowa, South Carolina, are usually older voters. I've noticed it too. What do you do to unwind? Uh, or, or what do you like to do on date night? I mean, what do you do to take your mind off of politics? Uh, usually TV. You know, um, we're living, thankfully, in a golden age of just great television. Game of Thrones is there for us. Veep is a little close to home, but it's there for us. Although I think Game of Thrones is actually a, also a TV show about politics. Uh, so there's that. There's our dogs. Just the presence of a dog who has a very strong relationship to you and has no concept of, of politics is really good for you, I think. Buddy and Truman are, are pretty leveling for us. Part of the correct answer is physical exercise. I've not been as faithful to my <laughs> PT plan as I'd like to be, but I, I envision that being an important part. Because you have to, like, you have to be a human being as well, especially this moment when, you know, authenticity is yeah. the coin of the realm. And you think, what does it mean? What does it mean to be considered authentic or to present as authentic when between the time we're recording this and the time I go to bed, several times I will stand in front of people and say exactly the same thing Uh (laughs) and have that be authentic. The only way you can anchor yourself in all that is to do things that are not related to politics, even if it's just for a few minutes. It's also where I think spirituality can be really important. Uh, not that you have to be religious to succeed here, but I begin my day reading a, um, a piece of scripture and, and, and a reflection that uh, is sent to me. And it's just something that matters whether or not I'm doing well or doing anything in the political space. And, and you got to grab hold of those things, spiritual, physical, uh, emotional, interpersonal, and if necessary, canine, that are just immune to politics. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, thank you for coming on The Argument. <laughs> thank you. Okay, now we're going to take a quick break. As a global leader in experiential education, Drexel University encourages students to both gain knowledge and find new ways to turn that knowledge into action. Drexel is proud to be one of 39 private institutions in the nation to achieve recognition by the Carnegie Classification of Institutions of Higher Education as an R1 research institution, affirming this Philadelphia University's commitment to discovery and innovation. Experience what education can be at drexel.edu. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. Okay, I'm back with Ross and Michelle to chat more about Mayor Pete. So, Michelle, what are your thoughts about Mayor Pete? I mean, he's speaking my language, right? You know, particularly his emphasis on democracy reform and the structural 
impediments to the majority of people in this country actually being represented in our policymaking. He's the one who's talking about that most directly, has made that, you know, front and center. And part of me thinks that that's kind of a boutique issue. You know, I think most people care more about their more immediate material needs as opposed to these kind of higher level structural things. But I think he's right that you don't get progress on the material stuff until you fix the kind of fundamental flaws in our democracy. It's funny because I just recently I wrote a column basically chiding Democrats for thinking too much about electability and, you know, saying that you should think about who speaks to you. And yet at the same time, when I think about Pete Buttigieg, I realize how hard it is for me to do that, right? I mean, he's maybe not my first choice. He would probably be in my top three. But I still, I just can't see it. The idea that you go from mayor of South Bend, Indiana to the White House, I just can't see it happening. So I find it hard to kind of follow my own advice and follow my heart. I mean, he's got more government experience than Donald Trump did when he won. Right. But I Donald Trump is... is obviously should not be president. Yes. The combination that I find most intriguing about him is he is very ambitious in a lot of his ideas, right? You heard him be in favor of a tax rate higher than Obama's and a wealth tax on top of that. And you heard him say there's a lot of room to the left uh, of where Obama was. And yet he also is, it's quite clear, a realist who's very open to compromising and taking half a loaf when that's what you can get. And I like the combination of both ambition, but also someone who doesn't get all tripped up and say, well, if you're not for Medicare for all now, then you're just a sellout. And it's that combination that I kind of find interesting. You know, one question I should have asked you to ask him is whether, you know, his father was a scholar of Gramsci, the kind of famous Italian Marxist. And I can't help but wonder if that's affected some of his thinking, particularly his thinking in these sort of like large historical arcs. You know, I mean, he talked about Obama being the last president of the Reagan era and kind of has this sense about how all of the assumptions underlying our policymaking have suddenly collapsed and we're in this moment when a new politics is possible. And that's something that I think about a lot and that I think is true. And I sort of wonder what the kind of theoretical foundations of his thinking about that are. Russ, obviously, we're interested to hear your response to his answer to your question. But I guess before we even get to that, I'd just be interested in what you make of him more broadly and why he seems to be resonating with at least some Democrats. I mean, I think a big part of it, and I wrote a column about this, actually, is that he seems in his personal life story to represent a kind of answer to a problem that I talk about and think about a lot, which is this problem of sort of elite self-segregation, the ways in which the system of meritocracy that we have encourages the best and brightest, the high SAT kids to all end up in the same few cities and neighborhoods and create these concentrations of talent while the rest of the country potentially falls apart. And Buttigieg is sort of, you know, he's an uber meritocrat, right? He's the son of professors. He, you know, goes to Harvard. He gets a Rhodes Scholarship, the, the most meritocratic of meritocratic uh, and also most insufferable of meritocratic honors. And he goes to work for McKinsey. There's nothing more meritocratic in the, I think, worst sense than the appeal of going to work for a consulting firm. I mean, some of us would say that Harvard, Rhodes Scholarship and McKinsey is the trifecta of meritocratic insufferability. I think it is. So he's insufferable in that sense, except then he does two things that 
the insufferable meritocrats don't usually do. He joins the military and he goes back to his hometown of South Bend not to be a professor at Notre Dame and live in the academic bubble, but to be mayor of this fallen on hard times town that used to make Studebakers back when Studebakers were a thing and now emphatically does not. And it's sort of the equivalent of like a LeBron James going back to Ohio or something. It's a story that has a particular kind of resonance in the moment that we're living in. And it makes him interesting. I think that's basically the core of the Buttigieg appeal. He's a meritocrat who hasn't behaved like one. But can I just counter quickly? Because there's actually another candidate in the race who, except for the military, has sort of an identical trajectory. So Cory Booker goes to Stanford. He is a Rhodes Scholar. He goes back and becomes mayor of this hardscrabble city. And yet he doesn't have the same mystique. I think there was a time when he did. There was a time when there was a lot of romance around Cory Booker, but it hasn't really gelled this time. I think that one of the reasons is just novelty, right? That the Booker becomes mayor of Newark story was a big thing that the national media was very into for a while. But he's sort of been here <laughs> for a while. And we also already elected the first black president. And the media loves those kind of narratives. And Buttigieg would be the first gay president in addition to having this narrative. There's just some sort of appeal of novelty in his rise that in six months, he could look like Beto O'Rourke does right now, right? So what do you think about his answer to your question, Ross? Generally, I was pretty underwhelmed by the conversation. And his answer to my question was sort of a small part of the larger issue here, which is that he represents what political pundits used to call the wine track in democratic primaries. And it was this kind of stupid term. But, you know, the idea was there was a wine track and there was a beer track. And you would get the sort of high-minded policy wonk running on the wine track and the guy who actually understood how politics worked running on the beer track. So Buttigieg is on the wine track in the sense that, like, he's sort of the bright young man who appeals to a certain kind of white educated millennial and a certain kind of, like, what a nice young man baby boomer, right? Like in Michelle's question. And that's a pretty narrow block. So Buttigieg needs a pitch for, you know, white people outside that block should vote for him. And maybe that should be a pitch to African-Americans and minority voters. I mean, Barack Obama was sort of a wine track candidate who, because he could win African-American voters, could win the nomination. I think more plausibly, though, Buttigieg sort of casts himself as the guy who understands the heartland and understands Trump voters, potentially, because there are some in Indiana, as you may have heard. And therefore, he should be someone who's basically trying to peel off a big piece of Joe Biden's support right now, the sort of moderate to conservative Democrats who aren't all the way with wokeness and so on. But where's the pitch that says, here's why I'm different. Here's why I'm more electable, because I'm going to win more Midwestern states than Hillary Clinton does. Where's the argument for his expansion? I think to make that argument, maybe you don't need to say, I'm the guy who can have a culture war truce, which I guess he doesn't want to say, but you need to have something. And this comes back to this underlying question about small d democratic reforms. If you want to enact small d democratic reforms, you have to win the Senate. In order to win the Senate, you have to appeal to voters in rural states who are voting for Republicans. In order to do that, you have to have a plan. And I didn't hear that plan in the interview. 
I don't necessarily disagree with Ross in that Buddha judge, he has a pitch that's kind of aimed squarely at like me, you know, and also my parents. Right. I think he does appeal to some of those kind of Biden voters who maybe aren't all the way with, you know, Elizabeth Warren, certainly not with Bernie Sanders. I went to the Biden rally in Philadelphia and by far when people were telling me who they were deciding between, it was almost always Biden, Buttigieg and Kamala, you know, and some people even had like recurring donations to all three of them. They are kind of all drawing on the same people. Obviously, there's a lot of interest in it. And obviously, there's a lot of momentum behind it. But I sort of worry that it's limited for some of the same reasons that Ross does, even though it's not that I kind of want to see a candidate take a more culturally conservative tack. Okay, last thing. He also got a lot of attention for going on Fox News and doing a Fox News town hall. Michelle, do you think Democrats should be going on Fox News? I don't think they should. I understand why they do. And I think there's competing interests, right? I mean, I feel like Elizabeth Warren's refusal to go on Fox was like something that she was doing in the interests of the progressive movement as opposed to the interests of her own campaign. So candidates like Mayor Pete, like Bernie Sanders, you know, can get a lot out of showing that they can go on Fox News and explain their policies and have people applaud for them in what might seem like enemy territory. But I also think that Elizabeth Warren is absolutely right in that Fox itself is such a malign institution. It's this kind of quasi-state TV, hateful propaganda network that progressives have been systematically boycotting and they've been losing advertising and their sort of business model in some cases is being challenged. And when Democrats come along and go on it, they help legitimate it. They help sort of whitewash it and help kind of prop it up as a business. And I don't think Democrats should be doing that. I guess I think Democrats should recognize that Fox is basically a version of state-run media, as you said, Michelle. But I do think a town hall like that and a chance to really get the message out to people that Democrats don't always reach. And I like the fact that he went on and he criticized Fox's role in spreading hate. I think the Democrats should treat Fox News differently. But I guess I found that idea of going onto a town hall there to be probably worth it. Well, and Chris Wallace is not doing state propaganda, right? I mean, Fox News is a 24-hour channel. Chris Wallace obviously dislikes, strongly dislikes Sean Hannity. And I don't think Democrats are going to succeed in boycotting Fox out of existence. And I don't think you lose anything by appearing on a town hall organized by the people who work for Fox who aspire to be serious newscasters. I think there's a variation in candidate. There's more of an argument that Warren should go on Fox News and that Biden shouldn't in a certain way, because both Warren and Sanders are premising their campaigns on the idea, I think the plausible idea that there are a lot of heartland voters who are sort of white, culturally moderate, possibly economically populist, who they could win over to their side. And those are people who, at least in the theory, would watch Fox. And so you'd be trying to reach them. But Warren has been going out and talking to those people. You know, she went to West Virginia. She's going into kind of hostile territory. I think that her analysis, which I think is correct, is that the straight news people on Fox News sort of give cover and legitimacy to Tucker Carlson's white supremacist variety hour and that the network as a whole should be treated as sort of toxic propaganda. It is in some sense paying the price 
For all its political influence, its viewership is only a couple of million people, right? There are other ways to kind of reach the electorate, including, you know, the Republican electorate or the people who are sort of outside your ideological bubble. In general, I think if you could organize a mass boycott of all the cable news networks based on their viewership, that that could be healthy for American politics. But I think the idea that you're going to sort of successfully delegitimize Fox News itself represents sort of this larger liberal mistake about sort of how much how much they can use cultural power to sort of smash conservatism. But this is probably a topic we could take up at another time at greater length. Okay, well, let's leave it there. If you want to hear from other candidates, we interviewed Elizabeth Warren on the show back in March, and we will have more candidates coming up on the argument in coming weeks. Now it's time for our weekly recommendation when we make a suggestion meant to take your mind off of politics. Ross, it is your job this week. What do you have? So recently, David recommended a specific kind of perfectly brewed coffee from a specific coffee shop. And one of the questions that you often get as a New York Times columnist, people say, well, where do you do your writing? So I figured I could follow on David's recommendation and also answer that question by saying that I strongly recommend doing all of your work in coffee shops because that is, in fact, what I do. And the genius of working in a coffee shop is that you are effectively renting an incredibly small workspace in which you are sort of stuck for a specific period of time. And it gets you out of your home, but you're not in an office. Honestly, when I worked in the Washington, D.C. Bureau of the Times once upon a time, this guy, David Leonhardt, was always wandering into the office and wanted to talk to me about the great issues of the day, which was very distracting. I have always found the coffee shop as a workspace to be this happy medium. So how do you think about the ethics of the renting part of it? It's a little awkward, right? But generally, I feel like if you come into a coffee shop at 9 a.m. and you buy, let's say, a latte and some sort of breakfast thing, then you've rented things up until the lunch rush. And then you need to make a choice about whether you're going to spend more money at that coffee shop or clear out. That's my basic ethical position. I completely concur. People who read the op-ed page might be surprised <laughs> at how much of the work that they're reading is actually being done at random coffee shops in the tri-state area. That is our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you have thoughts or questions, leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. That's 347-915-4324. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. If you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show was produced by Alex Laughlin and Winton Wong for Transmitter Media and edited by Lacey Roberts. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Ian Prasad Philbrick, and Francis Ying. Our theme was composed by Allison Layton Brown. Special thanks, as always, to Kaiser Health News for use of their studio. Check out Kaiser Health News' big scoop this week on a secret FDA database. And we will see you back here next week. Thank you so much for joining us. Blah, blah, blah. Stitch in the rest.